So Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, and in the Pew Bibles, page 988. This is God's word to us this morning. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, and they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them, what do you want me to do for you? He asked, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Amen. And God will bless the reading of his word. Well, if you have a Bible handy to you, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 20. Those verses that we read earlier, we want to think about this short story in Matthew's gospel. We've been working our way through Matthew's gospel, and this is what we're coming to uh, this morning. Uh, it's on page 988 if you've got one of the Pew Bibles. So if I were to say to you this week, uh, Yanni or Laurel, some of you at least would know what I'm talking about and would have an opinion. This week, for those who don't know, there was an audio clip that sort of went viral on the internet, a computer-generated voice, because uh, many people, as they listened to it, heard the word very clearly, Yanni, and other people heard very clearly the word, Laurel. And it divided lots of people across the world, divided our house. And uh, just for the record, it's Yanni, and there's no question about it. <laughs> Reminded me, of course, of that uh, dress uh, about a year ago, a wee bit longer ago, perhaps. There was a picture of a dress, again, went around the internet a lot. Some people saw it as gold and white, remember? And others saw it as black and blue, strangely. And it's really remarkable, isn't it, that, that two people could look at the same thing in front of them and yet come to such incredibly different conclusions. And yet, maybe it's not that hard to imagine that that's the case, because that's what happens with Jesus all the time, just as we were saying to the boys and girls. People look at the Lord Jesus Christ, and they come to radically different conclusions about Him. Some see Him as an imposter, or a charlatan, or, or a, as a good teacher, or as a myth. Others see Him, as many of us would hear this morning as the Son of God, their Lord, and therefore someone to be worshipped and followed. And that's what's happening in this part of the Bible in, in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew's telling us about Jesus, and his big question at this point underlying some of these stories in this part of the gospel is, do you see who Jesus is? And you see, for Matthew, it's not a matter of dispute. It's not, it's not a matter of perception he knows who Jesus is. He sets out the evidence for us. He's done it already. He makes it clear that Jesus is God's Son who's come into this world to give His life as a ransom for many. That's the closing verse of the verse just before this passage that we've read. And the question is, is this the Jesus that you see? Do you see who He is? 
And we're coming this morning then to a really significant part in that whole story, because in chapter 21, we're going to find Matthew telling us about the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, usually associated with Palm Sunday. And this, of course, will mark the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life, leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Roughly a third of Matthew's gospel will be taken up with that, and its aftermath. But just before Jesus, just before Matthew jumps into that story, he, as it were, concludes everything that has gone before by telling us about this healing of two blind men. And the ironic thing is that though they are blind, they see clearly who Jesus is. Lots of people around Jesus that day and up to this point can't see it. The crowds don't see him clearly. In fact, if you glance forward to chapter 21, verse 10, uh, you'll notice just at the the top of the next page, if you've got Pew Bible 989, you'll notice that after the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, it says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? You see, they they, they don't get him. They, they, They cannot quite see who he is. Sometimes the disciples don't really see who Jesus is either. But ironically, these two men who can see nothing, they see who Jesus is. And the question is, do we? Do do you see who he is? Actually, we're, we're told this story this morning, I think, to help us push through on three questions. One is, do we see him? Then, do we want him? And then, thirdly, will we Will we follow him? That's how we're going to, to break up what we're going to say this morning. So first of all, do we see him? Let's look at the story. We, we read in chapter 20, verse 29, that Jesus is coming out of Jericho, and there's a great crowd around him. These are the pilgrims who are traveling up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and these two blind men begin to call on Jesus. Now, we need to say just a little bit about the setting of this, because this passage, this story, is sometimes used by people who want to point out some inconsistencies or apparent inconsistencies in the biblical record. Because in Mark and Luke, this story is also told, you should sit down with those sometime and read them all together, uh, remembering, of course, that Mark and Luke and Matthew never thought that, that their passages would be compared with one another. And whenever you begin to think like that, you realize that they are uh, remarkably consistent. But there are a couple of differences. First of all, Mark and Luke only mention one blind man, and they name him Bartimaeus. We've heard of blind Bartimaeus. But here there are two. Now, that's probably not too difficult to work out. Clearly, there were two. But the likelihood is that Bartimaeus was known in the early church, and so his, his name was, was familiar. And his was the story that, that uh, Mark and, and Luke tended to to emphasize, even though the fuller story, as it were, is uh, told by Matthew. So we we should think, really, of Bartimaeus and his friend. In Luke, however, it looks like Jesus is going into Jericho. Here he's coming out, Mark as well. So which is it? The answer seems to be both. In, In those days, there was old Jericho that dated away, way back to the time of Joshua, a thousand years earlier. And then there was a new development built by Herod the Great, sort of a a housing estate, as it were, around Jericho. And uh, both were called Jericho. They were beside each other, old Jericho, new Jericho. And it seems, therefore, that that what's going on here is that one writer has in mind the the new part, so he's going out of that. He's going into the, the old part. Maybe that helps us if we read those together and we're trying to sort of piece together the full story of what happens. 
These men are blind. They're beside the road, and that's the best place for them to begin to get some charity from those who are going past. This is a great opportunity for them, all the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem. They're likely to be generous. And then they realize that Jesus is passing by, and they begin to call out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, we don't know how they've heard about Jesus. Clearly, he's generating a lot of discussion in society. But how they address him is really, really significant. Son of David. So so they see Jesus not just as having parents that come from Nazareth, but they see him as a descendant of the great King David and also as one who comes from that line from which God had said one will come to reign over his people. The crowd used this title later as Jesus enters Jerusalem. They don't seem to understand the implications of it fully, but, but these men do because you see what else they call him. They call him Lord, a, a, a term that can be sort of taken in either way as, as very respectful or, or as really full of devotion. And then they call on him for mercy. So, so they're not just acknowledging his status, as it were, but they're also acknowledging his character. You're, you're a great king in the line of David, but you're a king that we can call upon for mercy. What they think of him is made even clearer whenever he stops and comes to them. He asks them a really key question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, if you were to ask them, what is it that you want more than anything else in the world? We would have expected them to have said, we want to be able to see. More than anything, we want to be able to see. But here you see Jesus makes it personal. What do you want me to do for you? So so here's Jesus, as it were, saying to them, you've been using these grand titles for me. You've been asking me for mercy. What is it that you think I can do for you? Who is it that you think I really am? What sort of belief in me do you really have? And they say, Lord, let our eyes be opened. They see who he is. They're not saying, Lord, well, do you know what we would really like? We'd like you to pray for us because uh, we pray that people will be really generous to us today so that we can get a bit of an income. We've no other way of getting that. Pray even that that God might help us see again. No, No, what they say is, here's what we want from you. We want to see. Isaiah, many years before this, 700 years before this, it talks about God's coming. And this is what it says. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So these two men would have known this. They, they, would have, they were saying, Lord, we want you to do for us the things that God does. They see who he is. They know that he's the divine king, yet the sort of king that you can call upon for mercy, the sort of king that you can come to when you've got nowhere else to go. Do you see him? Do you see him as God's king, God himself, the one who does what God can do, who you can call upon for mercy? It's possibly the most important question that a human being can grapple with. 
Who is this Jesus? Millions despise him. Millions adore him. And the Bible tells us it's not easy for us to see him. The effects of sin make it difficult for us to think clearly, especially difficult for us to think clearly when it comes to thinking about God. We naturally don't recognize him. And yet maybe as we begin to look at him here together today, something about him begins to come clear. And we realize that out of all the places in the world that we could go that we suspect rightly will prove unfruitful, he is the one that we can call upon for mercy. Do we see him? There's another question highlighted for us here, I think, and that is, do we want him? And that seems a strange question, isn't it? Because we've, we've just begun to, to see that these men see him, and, and then as they call upon Jesus, things get a little bit awkward for them. You see, it says in verse 31, the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. So Matthew makes it clear in his gospel that following Jesus is going to make a, mean a cost upon all who set out after Jesus. And sometimes it's going to mean a cost for those who come to Jesus in the first place. And that's how it was for these people. As they begin to say, we need Jesus, as they recognize that, they become an embarrassment and an inconvenience to others, and these other people try to silence them. For some of us here today, that has been our experience. We, some of you have told me that sort of story. You've expressed an interest in Christianity, and suddenly, out of nowhere, there's been a reaction from others around us, others who are very tolerant of all sorts of interests that we might have or others might have. And yet, when we express some desire to find out more about Jesus, well, well, they just become really hostile. It's not been the case for everyone. Some people talk about their, their salvation with, with a, a, a friend, and they say, good for you, that, that's great. But sometimes there can be hostility. Maybe you've wondered why that's the case. I think part of the answer to that is that as we express our sense of our need for Jesus, we are inevitably saying something to those around us too. We might not mean to, we might not even want to, but we can't really help it because we're saying something like this. We're saying, I'm starting to consider the possibility that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and therefore He has claims over my life. I must reckon with Him. And you see, if that's the case, if He has claims over my life, then He has claims over every life. Now, we might not say those words, but that's what we imply. And you see, it's true at the deepest level and sometimes people realize that it's true, suspect that it's true, and they don't want to be reminded of it. Happened to see a little bit this week of, of one of the episodes of The Crown. Not something I've watched a lot of, but it, it happened to be that episode where, where the present queen was meeting with Billy Graham as he came to England in the, the great Haringey Crusades and so on. And, and I don't know how much of what was portrayed in the, in the series was true, but, 
But the queen was really quite intrigued by him and by his message and met with him on a number of occasions. I think that part certainly is, is true. And yet they cut to show some of the reactions of the establishment, some of the politicians. And they were dismissive of Billy Graham, saying, oh, you know, I don't like the, the idea of him coming on a crusade. It implies that we are the heathen. You see? Coming to say, here's a way to get right with God. It implies, doesn't it, that, that we need to get right with God. Maybe some of you are facing that sort of thing just now. You're wanting to explore more of what Christianity means, but you're finding discouragement around you. It's become quite hard. Well, if that happens, we've got to ask ourselves, do we really want him? How much do we want him? And maybe the example of these men helps us. Look at what they do. Verse 31, the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy upon us. They shout all the louder. They won't let the crowd put them off. They realize that they will never get an opportunity like this again. Jesus will not pass this way again, and they really, really want him. It really is the logical next step from seeing who he is, isn't it? Why would we understand who he is and then not want him? If he is who the Bible says he is, if it's true, then we need him more than anything. And any discouragement is worth pushing through. Any cost is worth paying. Jesus himself made this point whenever he told the parable of the great pearl. You remember that? There's a, a tradesman, a, 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 a fortune collector, as it were, who, who, who is searching out for this prize gem, this pearl of great price, and he finds it. And it says that he sells all that he has to gain it. In fact, it doesn't say that he sells all that he has. He joyfully sells all that he has. In other words, everything else is worth getting rid of if you get what you're really, really after. And Jesus is saying, you know, I am what you're really, really after. How much do you want him? Enough to be inconvenienced? Enough to be ridiculed? Enough to go against the crowd? enough to find him. Last question to be addressed here, I think, and that is, will we follow him? Because Jesus stops, and he has compassion on him. That's a great word. You think about where Jesus is going. He's heading to the cross, as we saw last week. He's thinking about the cup of suffering that he's going to endure in just a few days. And yet, with all of that on his mind, he hears the cries of these two men, and he stops, and he turns to them. And you notice that he deals with them with great sensitivity and compassion. He touches their eyes. They, they, he doesn't need to do that, but their, their sense of sight is not operating. And so he allows them to experience his approach, the beginnings of his healing, through senses that they do have. And immediately their sight is restored. And that's not where the story ends. You see, it is where the story ends for some people that Jesus heals. You remember once Jesus healed 10 lepers and sent them off to the, the priest in the temple to have their healing sort of officially verified and so on so that they could be reintegrated into society. And we read in the Gospels that, that only one of them comes back to thank Jesus. The others just 
take what Jesus has given them, and they get on with their lives. That's a temptation, isn't it? We, we want something from Jesus. Maybe it's, it's healing. Maybe it's help. Maybe it's just to, to feel good for a, for a while. And, and maybe we, we get that, and then that's where the story ends, and we get on with our lives. We live by our own agenda. We sort of say, well, that was yesterday's story. I'll come back with him if I need something else. We take what we can get from him, but we don't really want him. But this story is here for us as a model of how we are to be. And that is, will we see who Jesus is? Will we push through the obstacles that are required for us to get to him? And then will we follow him? Verse 34, immediately they received their sight and followed him. That's how the story ends. And you see, that's the model that's set before us here. Matthew has been emphasizing that to us all along. Remember, he records Jesus as saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So don't just think about becoming a Christian as making a decision or getting right with God. That might be how it starts but we need to think about following Jesus, about being a disciple, about learning from him in every area of our lives, about patterning our lives after his, about turning away from what is wrong and trusting in him so that our values increasingly reflect his values, so that we allow him to determine what is right and what is wrong, so that we come to love what he loves and hate what he hates, so that we become more and more like him. You see, it's a following Remember we said that he had a claim on all of our lives, and this is our claim. This is his claim, that our rightful place is not just acknowledging him. It is falling into step behind him day after day after day. Will we follow him? And you see the logic of this story for us today is to say to us, we will follow him if we want him, and we will want him if we see him. If we see him as the Son of God, come into the world to give his life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for us. If we see him as the one who is God's great king and such a king as whom we can call out to in mercy, knowing that he will hear us, if we see him as the one who comes to us in compassion and meets our need. Do you see him? Do you want him? Will we follow him? Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that some of these stories leave us feeling a little bit uneasy, for, for we wonder if we would have been those who were calling out in great need or those who were trying to silence them in the crowd. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to see that we need this Jesus more than anything, that, that, that we should follow him wholeheartedly, that we should want him above all else. So help us to see 
who he really is. And we pray in Jesus' name.